Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. There is a phrase employed by the Eastern wisdom traditions going back hundreds and hundreds of years that goes like this. There are 3,000 realms in a single moment of life. It's a principle that originates in the Lotus Sutra, a Buddhist text, and I wonder if C.S. Lewis had it in mind when he wrote The Great Divorce. He said there, there is no other day. All days are present now. This moment contains all moments. One second, one event, one encounter. These contain everything you were, everything you are, and everything you will ever be. And one single moment of your life holds all. It holds all of your potential and your possibilities. At this very instant, right now, you have brought with you your entire experience and existence and stretching out from this moment forward is everything you will ever do and everything you will ever be. It's a lot to think about. There are 3,000 realms in a single moment of life. All days are present now, C.S. Lewis. This moment contains all moments. Bring that wisdom alongside our dear friend Jacob. We read about him last Sunday morning. In Genesis 32. He was preparing to meet his twin brother Esau for the first time in more than two decades. Jacob had been avoiding Esau all this time because he had swindled his brother out of the family fortune. He had had him removed from the family will cheated his brother out of his rightful inheritance. And suffice to say, they had not been sharing holiday greeting cards for some time. As Jacob contemplates this reunion, he had no idea what kind of reaction Esau would have, whether he would even survive this encounter, or if he would see his angry sibling take out all those years of resentment on his own family, on his children. Esau might murder them all. And in the culture of the day, no one would be able to stop that. And most folks in the culture of that day would endorse such a response as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jacob, in solitude, in his single moment, contemplated all he had ever done, reflected upon the thousands of possible roads that might unfold going forward, 
And it is then he is joined in battle by a mysterious figure coming out of the darkness. Genesis 32 verses 24 through 28 once again. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked, what is your name? And he replied, Jacob. And there you might remember that Jacob means heel grabber. One who causes others to stumble. Trickster. By saying his name, Jacob is forced to confess his history. His past. All the deceitful things he had done. This list of all those deceitful things he had done, was legion. And that's where we left old Jake last week. Confessing his wrongs, crawling around in the mud with a divinely inflamed sciatic nerve. His heart aching and him begging for a blessing from above. There is something about this story of Jacob that for me, is those 3,000 realms. For me, there is something about this story of Jacob that is everything. This is one of those foundational stories. There are things to witness and learn here that will change your life and will go with you your entire life. There is within this story a model for how to live. For practicing our spirituality. For facing the past. For engaging with the present. And for looking to the future. I said last week that it's an epic story. And one of my favorites. And it has been since I first heard it as a child. And to hear about Jacob wrestling with this angel. Maybe I watched too much wrestling as a kid. And just thought it was cool. But it has stuck with me for these decades. And I knew As a child, in the way that only a child can know, intuitively, that something really special was afoot in this story. And so the years have endured, have endeared this story to me, despite the fact that my words will fail today in communicating the weight of the glory present here. Every time I speak from this text, I feel like I have failed because there is so much there that I haven't really gotten to it yet. Bless you. There's an old story from Kierkegaard about a fire that breaks out in a theater. Backstage. And the theater is packed with people. And someone has to warn the people that there's a fire backstage. So that an evacuation plan can begin. Well the only person ready to go warn the crowd. The only person in costume is the clown. And the clown goes out on stage and begins to warn the people. But, as Kierkegaard said, he was only a clown. And so, the more engaged he becomes and the more passionate he becomes about communicating his message, the more the people just laugh and clap. 
He tries again, they just laugh all the more. Now, Kierkegaard goes on to say that he thinks that's how the world will end. Somebody trying to tell us the truth while most of us just laugh and clap about it. And he's probably right. But I feel a whole lot like that clown sometimes. I might as well today have on a red nose and big floppy shoes. Because as I try to get into this text and communicate it, it just falls flat. There's something about this text you might just have to get on your own. That me talking about it may force you to contemplate it yourself. But maybe you'll get just a sniff of the smoke today. Maybe today you'll catch just a glimpse from the corner of your eye of what is being held before you. In these few moments, as Jacob wrestles with God, Jacob wrestles with Esau, Jacob wrestles with the world, Jacob wrestles with his unchangeable past, with his uncertain future, as Jacob wrestles with himself. And you can be sure of that, that right here, the fight is within himself mainly, and the opponent that he is up against is as much him as anybody else. Because if you will look in the mirror in the morning, you will see the one person in the world that is your biggest problem. I went back this week to check the oldest interpretations of this story. Not just our contemporary thinking. I went back past the Puritans, past the Reformers, past the church fathers and mothers. I went back to the Talmud and the Mishnah, to the medieval Jewish scholars, to the ancient rabbis. It's their story after all. It belongs to them first. And surprise of surprises, they didn't always agree. My Jewish friend says, put three rabbis together and you have seven opinions. To which I said, that sounds like Baptist. But each and every ancient source wrestled with the wrestling, wondering who it was really that Jacob was fighting that night. And it's ambiguous. Is it God? That's what Jacob concludes. Is it a spirit? The oldest view says that it was Esau's guardian angel. Come to keep Jacob away from him. Some say it was in fact Esau himself. That it is brother against brother. Others think that it was a dream. And Jacob, if you read his history, is accustomed to dreaming about angels. There is no simple answer, but the explanation from the rabbis with the most consensus, a consensus that surprised me was this. Somehow, someway, the person Jacob was wrestling was in fact himself. His fight with Esau, his struggle with God, his fist-shaking, hand-wringing protest against the universe, his lament at being a second-born son in a first-born world, his decades on the run for the choices that he had made, who was really left to argue with about those things? With whom could he take it all out on? He was left with himself. As the end of Jacob's story is one of transformation, let's begin right there. Transformation for any of us begins when we accept 
ourselves and all that that means. It is the Popeye profession. Could we get that one? I am what I am. Let's talk about that from two polarities. First, my brand of Christian faith, the one that I grew up with, demonized the self. There was zero acceptance of who we were. Why? Because the self was always associated with sin. With total depravity. With failure. It was communicated to me often, not just in our hymns, but in the preaching that I heard, that I am a wretch. And so are you. I deserve to die, and so do you. You are a worm. You are a blight before God's eyes. How can you even stand yourself? It's amazing that God hasn't kicked you into hell already this morning. But hey, God loves you and has a beautiful plan for your life. You see how that makes people schizophrenic in the church? It's also why Lewis Mead said that graceless religion is one of the strongest manufacturers of shame in the world. Graceless religion. Shame, shame, shame on you. For what? For being you. So if that is your background as well, you might have some trouble with accepting yourself as yourself. It might sound a little dodgy. But it is necessary. The second polarity, a cultural approach that we have, is to accept yourself as you are without critique or judgment. This is who I am. I'm just perfect the way that I am. So deal with it, suckers. I mean, haven't you been talking to someone and their excuse for their behavior is, well, you know that's just how I am. What? Some of who we are and some of what we have done isn't healthy for ourselves or for others. As I said last week, a large part of true acceptance of the self is that searching and fearless moral inventory, that truthful admission of our shortcomings, our defects of character. So on to this point I say, I am what I am, is not to avoid, overlook, or to make excuses for my failures, it is to admit them. It is to take responsibility for them. To the story, what is your name? My name is Jacob, and that was a true confession. I am a swindler. I am a trickster. I am a cheat. I am a fraud. I have not been true to my true self. I tried to be Esau. I tried to take what was his. I tried on his clothes and tried to live his life. I tried to be the firstborn. I tried to steal, earn, or swindle my father's love. A love that he could not give, God help him. I tried to be different than who I was born to be my whole life. And now finally, after all these years, and sometimes it does take years, maybe half your life or more to arrive at this juncture, he can let go of his attempt to be something or someone he is not. And it begins with having the honesty to admit all of that. I mean, how 
can Jacob have a clue about who he is or who God wants him to be when he has spent his entire life trying to be someone else? And that's a good question for all of us. Anthony DeMello tells the best story about this monk who probably became a monk because of his internal struggles and trying to exercise his own demons. And he's in this little cell in the desert where he prays his prayers and has his meditations and he's trying to overcome all of those shortcomings and his sins. And he's just not getting anywhere. He feels like such a failure. And so he decides that he's going to leave that little cell and go somewhere else because maybe a change of scenery would improve his situation. He sits down on his bed. He's He's lacing up his sandals and he turns and coming through the doorway is another monk. But it's him. And he says to the other monk, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm always here. And if you think leaving here is going to make your life better, I've got some really bad news. Because wherever you go, you take yourself with you. Back to the craziness of our community. People come to the beach or people make big changes in their life thinking that a change of relationship, a change of setting, a change of scenery will make everything better. Well, I've got bad news. Wherever you go, you're going to take yourself with you. So you better get busy working on that rather than trying to force the world around you to give you what you think that you need. So this is where we begin accepting of the self. The late Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs reflected on this text and he says this. Ask yourself, who am I? Really? What is the name I have made for myself? And what is the name, who is the person I am capable of being? Just to ask this question is one of the greatest blessings we have. As human beings. Let's do this in alphabetical fashion. So A, we accept ourselves. B, believe that you can be different. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? But it's not motivational speak. It's about simply having a little faith. Not in yourself, but in the process of becoming your true self. Believing that God is at work in your life, even sometimes when there is evidence to the contrary. Look at Jacob. He's busted. He's broken. He's face down in the mud. His leg has been ripped from its socket. He's exhausted from the decades of running. But he still has some audacity left in him. He still has enough strength left in him to beg for a blessing. How? Because within him, somewhere, he knew he hadn't done right. He knew he had taken the wrong path. But he also knew that that road was still unwinding. He also knew, he believed, that his life could be reconstructed. And it was. Now look at yourself. I am what I am, right? Start there. Accept the good, accept the bad, accept the ugly, accept the beautiful, accept the bankrupt. I am what I am, but that does not mean 
that what I am now is who I will always be. I have done what I have done. I can't do anything about that. But that does not mean that my future actions are held hostage by the past. Your story, such as it is, remains in motion. Padre Gautuma, a contemporary Irish poet that I love and now quote quite often, and I had his words inked into my skin, articulates this better than most. He says this, in a time of great pain. I said to him, are there answers to all of this? And he said, the answer is in the story. And the story is still being told. And I said, but there is so much pain. And he said, pain will happen. Then I said, will I ever find meaning? And he said, you will find meaning where you give meaning. The answer is in the story. And the story is still being told. You've got to believe that. If not... You aren't learning to change, you are learning to be paralyzed. You have a case of acquired stagnation. This is just the way I am and I'll never be able to change. Get that BS out of here. Because that's what it is. Those who say that aren't yet willing to make the necessary changes. And again, it's not motivational speak. This isn't the old rise above your circumstances. Come on now, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. When you're broken and busted, face down in the mud, beat down by the choices you have made and the circumstances that are beyond your control, there is no libertarian sense of we can do it now. There is only crying out for a little help. And a resilient faith goes down into that mud and somehow knows that in that struggle and in that pain, it will become transformative for the future. I'm not a sadist. I'm not saying that we should all go looking for some suffering, that way we can be changed. Are you crazy? No! But suffering is going to find you. Trouble is going to find you. It's just the law of human nature. It's just the law of the universe in which we live. Trouble will land at our door. And the question then is, will we attempt to escape it or avoid it? Or will we embrace it and let it do the work that honestly only suffering can do? What can I learn from this? Acceptance of self. Belief that change is possible. All that is left, three, the sea. Conscious Surrender. Choosing to surrender. Every good thing in your life has been the product of the choices that you have made. Happiness is a choice. Did you know that? Peace of mind is a choice. Gratitude is a choice. Love is a choice. 
With each of these, you make an intentional decision to give yourself over. It's exactly what psychiatrist Viktor Frankl said. And he said this not from the comfort of his classroom or his therapy office. He said this in the aftermath of surviving four different extermination camps of the Nazis where he lost both his parents, lost his wife, and his unborn child to the ovens. He says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. It is the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. I'm advocating for an attitude of relinquishment to choose surrender, to let go of all that stands in the way of being free, to hand over to God all that you are and all that you ever want.